0: Well, welcome everybody to Sunday night live stream with Ken Graves. Amen. So, such a blessing. So, tonight is 199 and tomorrow is 200. Episode 200 tomorrow, episode 199 tonight. So, uh, we're hoping to have somebody special on tomorrow. Rob is in the church, but he's exhausted, if you can imagine. He did that non-essential event. We're pre-recording this today today. Hopefully, you watched it tonight at 5 o'clock. If not, you can watch it anytime you want. Go to nonessential.live, and you can go to the website. If you register, it sends you the link for Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube, and you can find the link there and watch it. It was incredible um, to, to be part of that and to see Rob hit the ball out of the park on it. You are going to enjoy it. Charlie Kirk Jack Hibbs. It was an incredible event. I want to say there's like 4,500 people there. It's just incredible. So take advantage of that and watch that. Uh, If you didn't have a chance, if you didn't attend church, uh, your your sermon this morning was incredible. You can get away with your voice of saying. Half the things that most of us can't say. So, really? Yeah, it's
1: just, it, it, yeah. That's good to All know. Good to, yeah, so <laughs> the voice pays <laughs> off.
0: So uh, if you miss the service, it will be uploaded. Uh, make sure you watch that. And then if you haven't seen Ken before, he was on episode 167. We're going to get an update from the last time and 59. So we wanted to kind of go in to get to know you a little bit more. But we also wanted to get an update on the court case with your church, and then maybe we can compare and contrast to how it's going here. But what's the latest on the court case in your
1: church? I think that one of the advantages that we have, being a small, rural state, is that our our county government's not that big. It's not like what you deal with here in California with 40 million people. Right. And a state of Maine with a population of 1.3 million. Our business uh, in our lawsuit went immediately to U.S. District Court as we're bringing suit, uh, represented by Liberty Council, bringing suit against our governor for daring to suspend, as if she had that authority, our God-given and constitutionally guaranteed rights. So we went right away to U.S. District Court and o- uh, an Obama appointee denied our cause. So we made our immediate appeal to the First Circuit Court of Appeals and it took them months to finally come to the place where they would hear oral arguments, which they finally did about a month ago. And they ended that with "say, well, we'll take it under advisement, which, you know, means that... The, and, and they, the First Circuit Court of Appeals, is the second most liberal court, appeals court in America, second only to California's infamous Ninth Circuit <laughs>
0: We teach you, you, we have a uh, governor and a ninth district that's a little bit ahead of ahead
1: you. Of have you have a worse tyrant than we do, and you've got a worse court. But that's fortunately, while the First Circuit drags its feet and sets on this case, the Supreme Court, that we will make our immediate appeal to when the First Circuit denies us justice and our right, well, that Supreme Court is being reshaped, right. already reshaped by the... Uh, Subtraction, mm-hmm. and I certainly will not celebrate the death of anybody, but I won't count the subtraction of another liberal mm-hmm. baby killer to be a tragedy, for it is not. So, the court that we'll be making our appeal to should be a very different court. And we, we, we have every hope, Dave, that, that our case may be that very case that the Supreme Court is not going to be able to kick back to the lower courts.
0: So is the way the First District, when they say it's under advisement, yeah. does that mean they still, they still have to digest the case before it is allowed to go to the Supreme Court? Or since yep. they're dragging their feet, you can appeal right up to the Supreme Court? What's the, the well, legal I, mechanism?
1: I know for? what we are doing. I don't know what what we can do. And I know that what we are doing is waiting for them mm-hmm. to, uh, in all probability, and we say based on who they are, And their, you know, track record, their precedent, three elderly justices from the New York City area who've been hiding in their basements (laughs) for months from the virus. Right. And now uh, we're going to wait until they because the Supreme Court has been able to say to other cases that tried to bypass the appeals process that uh, now that case has to go back. Right. The liberals on the court were able to deny the court hearing those. We we don't want that to happen with us, so we're mm. we're willing to um, to wait.
0: And our and and your argument mainly is going through the First Amendment, That's where right. I've seen like in Nevada or some other they start to argue about the science and the the COVID deaths and stuff like that. No. Everybody seems to be approaching, but you guys are are. Definitely approaching it from the First Amendment.
1: Exactly. Okay. But there is no language in our Constitution that says, Congress shall enact no law regarding the establishment of religion, nor prohibit the free exercise thereof, unless. There's no unless. Yeah, there's there isn't. no but, there's no unless, there's not exceptions, or nothing. That's the reason why this has never been done. What our right. governors are doing, what world leaders are doing, has never been done before. Yeah. It is uh, insanity to put the public under house arrest, yeah, in the name of in the name of protecting some, they are killing many, right? And at the same time, they're destroying uh, livelihoods and fortunes, and whole economies. They're destroying cities, yeah. nations, yeah, economically. Yeah,
0: I think the one thing that Rob said, it you said it. We always need to be reminded in. Uh, since you're going to be watching this after you had an opportunity to see that non-essential, one of the biggest things that Rob did yesterday that got a standing ovation and it was so loud that you couldn't hear some of the words that Rob said after. He says, the Constitution says, we the people. We the people. And, And it started off with that. So yeah. When we're going out, and the Amen. big drive was for us to vote. The vote was, "We the people." You need to make sure all these people that we're getting frustrated with that yes. are taking away our rights. We're still, we're still in the driver's seat. Unless right, you man. want to give the driver's seat away to somebody else.
1: And that, brother, that is the issue that there are many pastors, and perhaps one or two, watching now, who have been—and forgive me if this hurts your feelings—but have been hiding. <laughs> hiding behind your understanding of Romans chapter 13. Right. That we are obligated to live in obedience to the governing authority. That passage, A, is a passage that lays out, yes, our obligation, but also lays out the obligation of legitimate government to punish evil uh, and to commend righteousness. Right. But the other reality is that in this that we've inherited, this very unique system. Something that did not exist when Romans 13 was written is a government that is by the people and for the people and of the people. That we are the sovereigns of this nation. Right. And that, we don't have kings. We don't have lords. We've got people in authority because we have lent them. We lent them authority. And it is, uh, high time we took that authority back.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me. It'd be interesting to see your comment on it. Is a lot of the the pastors that are using Romans, I'm I'm curious. Where's the line that they've drawn? Was it is it time? Hey, I'll let them do it for a period of time. Exactly. Is it uh, closed down for this long? Because uh, I want to see where their line is. Because it will be. Cross the way it's being pushed, especially in our state, I don't think as much in your state. But no. Gavin Newsom keeps on changing the goalposts, yeah. so that right when you're about to get through something, yeah. he changes it. Like uh, we had to have seven to seven to one hundred positive tests to be able to make it out of the next level. Well, now they changed it; it has to be in the poorest area of your county to make it to the next level. Right. And now uh, for. Kind of targeting the Thanksgiving thing, he is going for you for Thanksgiving or for gatherings. You can only have three households. It has to be less than two hours. It has to be outside. Oh so God. now we're just changing the whole matrix again. I don't think you guys are getting so much of the changing around of the rules. We're getting all a time. little
1: bit of that. Some of that. That is um, characteristic of right. all of these tyrants. Right. But the reality is that. Um, Representative government has been suspended. That's the issue. Right. That one person has presumed to decide all of this. One person who has presumed to claim the right uh, because of a perceived emergency. Mm. Not a real emergency, but a perceived one. You know, one of the things that um, we ought to talk about, we ought to note, is that there are churches that have supported the underground church in China for decades Mm -hmm. that are suddenly, they're supporting for decades. They supported Christians who met in defiance of the law of their government. Were those Christians in China that those pastors and churches were supporting not obeying Romans 13? Mm -hmm. They would gather in the name of Christ despite the fact that their government said not to. And now, the very same pastors who supported those churches, those underground churches, are now refusing to defy. Refusing. Yeah. And they're claiming yeah. something for them that they never claimed for the churches in those closed countries. Yeah. That's inconsistent.
0: Yeah. I know one of the people I was speaking at church today, they, they've uh, come from another church and they've you know, a lot of of these people have come here have talked to their pastors trying to encourage them, supporting them to reopen and the one says, you know, I really the pastor says, I really want to reopen, but right now we have such a good standing with the county right now, and we don't want to hurt that good standing.
1: Oh, that's disgraceful.
0: I know. It's like, Caesar really likes me right now, and I don't really want to hurt that relationship, so uh, we're not going to open. Can you imagine (laughs) a man even saying that? Even saying that, thinking the thought, and then saying it.
1: God have mercy on Yeah. Them, that, I need mm-hmm.
0: to borrow your voice and I'll oh, send that message to you. What, <laughs> what a man
1: pleaser. Yeah, yeah. Sooner or later, everyone is going to give up their standing right. with man. Right. If they're going to maintain their standing with God that called them. Right. God says, woe unto the shepherds. Woe. Ezekiel 34. He says, woe to the shepherds. That don't the the flock was scattered and they did not go after them. Right, Jeremiah twenty three. God has said, "I'm against the pastors because the flock was scattered and they didn't go after them." God's Mm -hmm. flock is being scattered, and those shepherds who are allowing that are in trouble with God. I honestly started out, Dave, trying to really restrain myself from being critical of pastors who were reluctant. I originally started out my my official statement locally up in Maine was you guys that uh, are willing to only do what the governor allows you I don't judge you I wish I could be like you but I just can't. Yeah. That has changed with the passing of these many months. I can no longer be so gracious. I got to say you guys are you guys are being cowards. Yeah. You are a pleasing man and you are not pleasing God. Yeah.
0: You know, there's a movie I think it was in the seventies and I can't believe it's still etched in my mind, but it was the movie Left Behind. There's yeah. the old Yeah and, and all, of all these people are being taken up. Yeah. And there's this one scene with a pastor that's flipping through his Bible and he hasn't been taken up and he's going what did I do wrong? What did I preach wrong? What did I, yeah. what did I do? Why am I still left behind? I remember that. And I, and I reflect back to your sermon this morning, and you talked about feelings versus truth. Yeah. And to me, when I listen to some of the, uh, the sermons online of the pastors and uh, across the country, I can't believe it's more based off of feelings, and they're not, they're not truly... Seeking the truth. Now, I'm not trying to chastise because I'm obviously not a pastor, but I'm sitting there going, "You can't tell me that you're seeking the truth in what you're saying. No, I, right. I, I, it doesn't resonate with me that right. that's
1: the truth." It you is. Know? It is. I, I really believe there are many guys who are justifying their fear, yeah, justifying their cowardice. There was a. I honestly got to admit that I didn't even know what a meme was. Before all of this started. But somebody put one together, and it was a classic piece of art uh-huh. of Daniel praying at the window of his house mm-hmm. in violation of the law. And all of these voices are speaking at Daniel. And this was way back when this began. I don't know who's responsible for it, but it was brilliant. Right. One voice is shouting, But Daniel, it's <coughs> only for 30 days. It's temporary. Another voice shouts, This isn't a very good public witness. And another voice is shouting, the Torah doesn't say pray three times with open windows. Yeah. Another voice is shouting, Jehovah worship isn't singled out. This isn't persecution. Yeah. And then another voice shouts, think of your people and health. Think of the consequences. But all of them together are shouting, submit to the government. Yeah. To Daniel. Yeah. And all of those things, no doubt, have been said. I, I, I think of how, how uh, people said early on, hey, even the bars are closed. I made the statement that it was the spirit of Antichrist at work. And there were pastors who thought that was unfair. They told me that, that that's unfair. Why, even the bars are closed, even the, even the sporting venues are closed. And my answer to that is it's not unfair at all. it is the spirit of Antichrist it is at work in every big government reach for power. they are always secular humanist atheist, always the enemies of Christianity or of Christ. It is the spirit of Antichrist that forbids people to be gathered in the name of Christ and I am deeply disappointed yeah at yeah, uh, the American people, my own fellow Mainers, their compliance has blown my mind. Is it still the land of the free? Is it still the home of the brave? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. I'm not sure that uh, we can claim that anymore.
0: Have you heard, uh, interesting from your perspective from 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 Maine, is that I don't really hear pastors using that are shut down, pastors that are shut down, I don't really hear the Romans' argument anymore. They've moved on to, we can be flexible. We can. Have you heard any other things that are not seeking the truth as a methodology for reasons to be shut
1: down? I have heard the most creative attempts to justify cowardice. And among them, I've heard pastors say, God's doing a new thing. I mean, he's doing a new thing and he's, he's, he's forcing us into new, new avenues. And, yeah. you know, and, and you, you, no matter how you spin it, no matter how you, no matter how you try to turn this thing, you are obeying a government that commands you not to gather God's people in the name of Christ. And, um, I've heard some things. You've Of course, probably the nation has heard people like Andy Stanley claim mm-hmm. that, we're not commanded together. We're not commanded together. Everything in the New Testament that we're called to do, every single one another verse, requires us to be together to do them, to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your hearts of the Lord. All of those another, one another voice, require us to get together. we got a commission, and that is to make disciples of all nations. I, 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 I don't hear anybody trying to manipulate Scripture as much. Yeah. Uh, I think Andy Stanley's case is biblically undefensible, and as John Doctor MacArthur said, said, it was laughable. Mm-hmm. Um, others have just acted like, it, you know, God's doing a new thing. You got some of those guys who are mega church um, celebrities, yeah, and they are celebrating. They're well, they're celebrating the fact that they've got one million followers on social media. It's wonderful than opportunities that may present them. That is not getting the flock of God together with each other. There is no one another ministry happening because they can watch you handle the word, you know, on online. Yeah. So uh, I don't hear a whole lot of manipulation of scripture. I just hear guys saying stupid things.
0: You know, it's interesting is that going to that non essential yesterday morning. for them to record, going to church service today. As you know, at your church, you could feel the truth in the people, in the hugs, in the um, smile, in the being able to connect with you as they see you uh, preach the gospel. That is the truth because you could feel it. There's no denying that sense of God being in the house. That's right. And I can't imagine in any way, we've used the, the, the example before, watching a fire on your TV as opposed to being out in a campfire. In the, yeah. It's two incredibly different experiences.
1: Virtual versus real. Yeah. It, yeah. You know what? The other thing is, honestly, um, besides the fact that there is no biblical reason for us to suspend what God has called us to do, there is no other reason either. There's no science behind this. Right. Science is political science. Right. It is a manipulation of information. It is, we are being lied to. And, um, and that's the other reality. Yeah.
0: I'm con- you know, concerned about, I, once again, I'll go back across the uh, different megachurches and see their viewerships on their different sermons. They're down below a thousand in a lot of cases. You have a mega church here, you have two hundred, three hundred people watching. Yeah. And as we know, if you've done any research on forming habits and stuff, exactly. people are getting in the habit of not going to church and not fellowshipping oh, you're right. and they're replacing it with other things. Yeah. What's gonna happen when whatever causes them to finally reopen? What's right. gonna eventually happen when their their congregation is out of the habit of going to church and fellowshipping with people.
1: My hope is that all those people will go find good pasture and good leadership. Yeah. But you're yeah. so right. It is, you know, the sociologists tell us that it, it takes a, a six to eight weeks of consistent repetition for something to become a habit. Right. And likewise, for a habit to be broken, good habits, like right. church attendance, easily broken, Right. especially when it sort of agrees with the flesh anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that you—you you really nailed it. It is—it is a tragedy that pastors are allowing such habits to form. Yeah,
0: you know, Rob has said it several times: is that um, uh, that um, that he wants people to go home when their churches reopen. Yeah, and but I know a lot of people are saying that. Um, they feel like they are home. And as their yeah. pastors take longer and longer to open up, that uh, people are starting to get frustrated for good reasons, yeah. that they're finding a hard time. You know, the habit of being at home is being formed. Yes. So it's going to be harder to go back to the place you used to live at. So I would, I would encourage pastors to start reopening because we need a lot of people taking the stand. I, you know what? I actually
1: uh, was asked about that on another uh, podcast. The question came in, you know, what do I do? My pastor doesn't want to open. I said, there are three things, and I'll say it here. Three things. Number one, you pray for that man. You pray hard and intercede for him. Secondly, you let him know you're there, and you'll stand behind him. Mm-hmm. Even if the whole world forsakes him, you'll still be there. You let him know that, and you try to encourage him by the word of God, if you can take that encouragement. But thirdly, this is the part that's a tough pill to swallow. You're going to let him know if you won't lead, yeah, I will go find leadership. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. losing me. Yeah, I will only follow you as you follow Christ. And there is yeah. a, a time approaching when I'm going to conclude that you're not leading and you're yeah. not my leader. That yeah. relationship is is going to come to an end. Yeah, and I think that's legitimate. I, Rob's a humble guy, and I appreciate him. You know, trying to you know, he's not wanting to capitalize on this crisis to collect sheep from other pastures. Yeah. But the fact is, sheep are going to go where the food is and where there's safety. Yeah. And they're going to follow the person who's leading them. Yeah. Um,
0: the one thing we, we, we wanted to find out about you today is I've got to spend probably you know, two or three times with you and Rob and some other people. And... Your depth of knowledge, your depth of character. We got to hear about the story this morning about meeting your wife. Mm-hmm. But we haven't had a chance to really hear the testimony. And how did you gain this depth of knowledge, wisdom, integrity? And also, it translates. I, the thing that's amazing to me, when I get to go over and hang out with Rob, as you've seen, his family is a testimony yeah, to who he is. Yeah. And when I get to see the people that you bring, that you've witnessed, that have gone through your program at your church, that's a testimony to who you are. So, but people haven't really heard that. So I'm going to be hearing it for the first time. I've heard some tidbits of it, but can you give us the background of where you came from that got you to where you're at today?
1: Well, I can't acknowledge any depth because I'm not aware of it, but I I will agree (laughs) with Jacob, uh, uh, Jim. Jacob said in Genesis 32:10, I'm not worthy of even the least of the mercies and the truth that you've shown under your servant. And, and I will, I will, that's my sentiment. That's my testimony. Mm-hmm. Not worthy of even the least of the mercies and the truth. I, uh, I, I wasn't brought up in this faith. Mm-hmm. I wasn't brought up in any faith. My, uh, I mean, other than my, my mother, God bless her. She had heard the gospel and received it and believed it, even though she was a very confused girl my My mother was a young woman who had been severely beaten by her drunk father who mm-hmm. fled that circumstance at sixteen and ended up with my father who picked up where her father left off mm-hmm. and uh I witnessed the uh, horrors of of um the, the evil that alcohol can bring out of a of a person uh, my my childhood early childhood memories were all very traumatic they were terrible of my Occasions where my father was uh, killing my mother, and it was my horrified scream at six that caused him to leg over her neck and she fall and crawl away, and those those kind of things. And then he and then he left us. He abandoned his family. He decided he wanted to do life different. He wanted to be free. <laughs> he wanted to please himself, and he just he left us. I had I had four sisters and myself, and we four were four
0: sisters. And he- now,
1: yeah. And somebody said to me, after my dad left, well, you're, you're the man of the house now. And I didn't know what that meant. But I know that the load was more than my little kid's shoulders could handle, and it, and it really did crush me.
0: Where were you in the uh, age, the sisters all older or younger? Or what were...
1: <laughs> I have a sister who, who could be watching us, who's one year older, but she's always been our little sister. <laughs> <laughs> the only male, I was the second born. Uh-huh. But... Um, we, you know, we. It was a it was a childhood full of worry. Mm-hmm. He left us. He uh, occasionally visited, but it was all bad. It was all traumatic. Life was so bad, and with no dad, you're vulnerable to being victimized. People will step in, capitalize on the absence of a dad. I had that experience with a, a fifth grade teacher who took me and the other fatherless boys on camping trips, and ultimately, it was the discovery the traumatic discovery that we're not sons to him, that he was grooming us for something else altogether. And the horror of that discovery, and those kind of things, and, and the poverty, the worry, what will we eat? How are we gonna make it through another Maine winter? And uh, spend my days worrying or doing what I could. Um, welfare recipients, you know, and that, that never, I never, it's not designed.
0: How did, you know, I'm trying to visualize, you had your mom that obviously was abused as you just told us, but now you're kind of being protecting her and then four sisters too no. and trying, I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm going to be able to look out for my mom now, but when you have five people that are all vulnerable to all the things that you just said, but the emotional aspect of it too must have been it was overwhelming. It was
1: the absolute misery of that childhood that brought me to such despair, that um, such awful despair that uh, I, see my mother was very broken. She'd tell you that if she were here, she was so broken. What her father did there and what my father did She just wanted to be loved, and she went looking for that. That meant men were coming and going. Mm -hmm. So my childhood was an an awful vigil of just trying to keep them, my sisters, from being um, victimized. But ultimately, it was that misery that caused me to ask the questions that I suppose others would ask later in life, you know, why am, I, why am I alive? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? What's the point of life? And my dad, when I was 10, he stepped back in just long enough to deliver one message. My uh, fourth grade, uh, I guess it was nine or 10, my dad came to my school, which never happened. The principal came to my classroom and said, Kenny Graves, your dad's here. I thought that was a mistake, but I went anyway. I came down to the principal's office, and sure enough, it was my dad. He, uh, he gestured for me to get in the car. I did. We rode, and he was trying to tell me something. He was having a hard time. I'm just a kid, but I could tell he was really having a hard time. We never had a real conversation. We'd, nothing of meaning. Mm-hmm. He was trying to tell me things. He was stammering and <laughs> stumbling over his words. He did not have the vocabulary to tell me to live for the Lord. To express his regret for how he had lived, that's what he was doing. At the age of thirty-three, he had become very conscious that his life was not happy. That the uh, the effort to do whatever he wanted and deny himself nothing had not produced happiness; it produced misery. He was a broken-hearted man. He was trying to. He was saying things like, "You need to say your prayers. And, you need to you know, go to church." He's trying to tell me, he didn't know how, but I heard him. I had already heard the gospel at eight. Good Baptist with bus ministries came and picked us poor white trash kids up and brought brought us to church. We heard the gospel. I heard. I believed it. I asked for baptism. Was baptized a year earlier. Well, my dad telling me that. I heard him, and it was uh, it was like a blessing. It was like a, a patriarch has the power to bless or to curse. And my, my father, despite all the wrong that he had done, despite the abandonment and everything else, that one event was punctuated by the fact that I would never see him again because he would die six months later. Oh, my God. A blasting accident at work took his life. And uh, so, so it being the last thing he ever said to me, it just it always stayed with me. It replayed. It did replay, but it was at the age of 13 when the witness of a middle school science teacher who seemed to have the answer to where do we come from, where are we going, what are we doing here? He taught the theory of evolution. It was his task. And when he got done with the theory of evolution, you couldn't possibly believe in the theory because he taught it side by side with scientific fact, established scientific law that violates the theory He provoked me with uh, everything that he implied, but he, and I could also, I was aware of the frustration that he couldn't tell me. He couldn't answer my question. In fact, I asked him on one occasion. My hand was raised. He didn't see my raised hand. And I just blurted out, where did we come from there? I was 13. And he turned to face the class and address my question. He was searching. I could see him searching for the words. And this young, I don't know, 20-something-year-old, fresh out of college, first teaching job, teacher, this Christian, he said with a sigh. Now, this is, you know, probably a decade after they kicked God out of public education. The Supreme Court said he wasn't welcome, (laughs) that it was unconstitutional. (laughs) My teacher said with a sigh, it's against the law for me to tell you. It's against the law for me to tell you that. And that was all I needed. He provoked me. I was a rebel. I was already full of contempt for the world system and its cruelty and the, and the stratification of human society, which I became aware of from underneath it, looking up at it. I was, in my heart, I was like, oh, 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 they don't want me to know. Well, that's, that was the perfect provocation. and that the connection between him, his faith, and that Bible. He had that Bible sitting on his desk. Jeez. that the school was real concerned about. They yeah. drew my attention to it by the way they persecuted him for having it there. He was not allowed to read it to us, but it was there for him. It was part of his identity. If he had a, if he had a break, he could open it up and read it for himself. They, the godless superintendent, Mr. Susie. I still remember his name. I can say that particular uh, representative of Caesar, God used him to provoke me, to rebel against him. I committed that I would quit procrastinating. <laughs> I was 13. I knew I needed to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I finally, um, I opened it. And I began to read. And reading, I, I discovered that God had texted us from heaven, that the word of God was alive and powerful, and that the author was with me. He was calling me. I became keenly aware. I had, so, Dave, I had this big um, plan of life up until then. I was filled with bitterness and I was, I was a weird kid. Uh, and my, I would sit around and draw pictures of me growing up. Big enough and muscular enough to be choking the life out of my enemies. I draw these vengeance pictures. That <laughs> was my, my pictures were disturbing. Did you save any of them? No. If anybody would have, if anybody would have looked over my shoulder and saw what I was drawing, they would have had me committed somewhere. Yeah. This kid is a menace. And I had, and, and I had sort of developed my own religion prior to reading the Word. And I knew enough about God, and I knew of the. The account of the destruction of God in the days of Noah, Cold War era, childhood, I was convinced that the world was going to bring destruction upon itself again, only this time it would be a nuclear annihilation. And I was volunteering to be the next Noah. I was like talking to God and like, come on, you got to have a Noah. I'm volunteering. And um, all I need is one woman. I had uh, I had a plan. This is my yeah, little my yeah, weird my weird out. kid mind. <laughs> I sit around sketching all of this. Sketching was this artistic outlet that I had. I would sketch. And the night that um, by the time I came to the seventeenth chapter of Luke, and I was reading the words of of our Lord about he, he said, "Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life will find it." And I still I get emotional when I think of him mm. calling me, But I realized he was calling me to let go my life, my my weird, crazy plan. And I realized he was calling me I surrendered. I tapped out. Bye. I reached across my desk in this dumpy little rented house and uh, my sketches which I had tacked to the wall. I tore them down. And I threw them. I was very tearful. And I, I realized who Christ was. He revealed himself, what he did, who he is. And my heart was captured by him. I knew that he had called me to a life of service. I knew he called me to preach, to proclaim that truth. It was three years later that I quit school, go set the world on fire for Christ. I was 16 years old. I looked at the curriculum in high school and determined as a fatherless boy that there was nothing here relevant to my life of serving Christ. I actually found some guys that took me in the ripe old age of 16, I made some phone calls, and I found guys working with drug addicts and drunks down in rural Alabama, of all places. Really? And um, I, I i read The Cross the Switchblade. It was, it was yep. A, yep. You, you remember yep. David yep. Wilkinson's story? Yep. In the yep. back of the book, in that paperback, there was this information about Teen Challenge, what they were doing yeah. residentially. And uh, i thinking about my dad, his bondage, and his need for freedom, and... Uh, The Lord moved up on my heart that I need to get with those guys. And believe it or not, they took me in. And to this day, when I talk to the old guys, they're now old, who remember the day the 16-year-old kid called, they say, We don't really know why we didn't tell you to go back to high school. Just had a sense that God was in it. One guy he asked me, Well, what do you have a drug problem? I don't have a drug problem. I'm a Christian. He goes, Do you do you curse? No, I don't. I told you I'm a Christian. He said, well, I don't know what we can do for you, but come on down here and we'll give you Jesus. I spent four years of my life on a farm in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, reading the Bible. That was my Bible college, reading the Bible and delivering what I read to students in our program. And uh, I I was grateful that they invested in me. They uh, trained me. They also hired me, put me on staff when I was 17 years old.
0: so that four years is basically your whole Bible training? Bo-
1: well, really? no, it never ends. But it was during those memorable years that God introduced me to great men who did go to Bible college and seminary. And they introduced me to the giants who wrote, to the G. Campbell Morgans and the Spurgeons, yeah. to, the, to the Pinks, and to, uh, to, the, to the C.S. Lewises, uh, the, the guys who wrote. Became my teachers, and I, I'm, I'm very grateful for them. And when God called me at the age of 20 back to the state of Maine, contrary to all my carnal ambitions, because <laughs> I wanted to be a big deal. I wanted to be a big name. I wanted yeah. to be, like, famous for God. Yeah. And Maine's a little rural state, a you know, tiny population. And I went obediently back at the age of 20 and started the church a mere three years later. that The I've,
0: church that you're in right now? The
1: church that I'm still Oh, yeah. pastor of, yeah, As an old man, I got old doing it, yeah, but i'm I'm grateful for the grace, grateful for the uh, one of the things that they taught me is they were working with drug addicts down in Alabama, they taught me meditation upon the word, meditate upon the word they They taught that, that uh, Psalm 1 promises, Joshua 1 promises blessing to the one who will meditate, to actually chew on it like the cow chews the cud, like the clean animals chew. And I learned that from them. I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for great teachers, and I'm grateful for insight. But I can tell you that the one practice that they imparted to me was that, meditating upon the Word. More than preparing a sermon, it's just meditate, chew the Word, chew it. And gu- seek holy spirit guidance and and, uh, and 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 just receive and then deliver yeah. what you have been given
0: so all the times that I normally see you 're in front of men i 've seen you did probably like two or three men 's conferences i haven 't I got to see you this morning, which was in can you tell me about what your church is like and what's what's what 's your congregation like what i mean it must be a <laughs> Close knit family. You've been there for a long time. I love
1: that church because you're 45
0: now, so you've oh, been there yeah. for 20 years. Yeah, I, so. I,
1: I turned 58 come on my way out here, <laughs> and uh, and honestly, that that church really is family. We've been particularly blessed to not experience massive division or or you know church splits. So you know there's always somebody leaving mad, right. but generally uh, I'm blessed to have stayed in one place long enough to watch this slow-motion parade of people that pass through. And you have the opportunity while they're there to impart to them some truth, biblical truth that can change them. To, you have the opportunity to, to speak into their life and affect them. And many of them who are sons and daughters in the faith have um, followed the Lord and answered his call in ministry. I'm grateful to have many sons in the faith that are serving the Lord. And many, I I stuck around long enough, I guess. I don't know if there's all that much virtue to that. It's not like anybody invited me to go anywhere. Right. But I've been there long enough to be dedicating babies, of of babies that are dedicated. Yeah. Weddings and funerals and and going through the seasons of life. I I think about it. Um, I didn't know that. I knew when God called me to preach, I was going to preach. But I didn't know I was going to have to be responsible for people. <laughs> I wanted to, I saw the itinerant and said, that's the gig I want. Yeah. Blow in and blow up and blow out. Yeah. You know, but God, he, he puts this burden, this sense of duty on your heart. And, and when I started the church, I, I started quite reluctantly. I wanted someone else to lead it, and I would just kind of support them. It mm-hmm. wasn't anybody. I kind of grew up in the role, Dave, and um, the decades they came and went. My 20s, my 30s, I'm, I'm very grateful to be a gray-haired man and still um, entrusted with that, that flock.
0: Is the church about the same size of this? How, how big is it? Is-
1: well, as far as combined weight, which is how I like to look at it, there's a lot of big people. It's one of the largest churches in America as far as the <laughs> actual weight, the girth. You taught I, them how to be healthy. We eat good. I, I would guess our church to be, you know, 1,200 people or so. Oh, so it's a pretty good size. It, it fluctuates with the seasons of Maine. Yeah. But it's, a, for where we are, That's a very big church. And and But the important thing is we keep getting rid of people. Yeah. We keep sending them off to go plant other churches and go to the mission field. I'm grateful for that. So you, not,
0: that, that you have a strong core congregation. Yeah. If you're spinning off people and sending them off, you know
1: you're doing... Some yeah. good stuff. I'm grateful for what the Lord has done. Again, not worthy. Yeah. Not worthy of even the least of the mercies and the truth that God has showed me. Yeah, And,
0: and, and your rehab program is an integral part of the church?
1: Always has been. Even, even before we formally started it, we were always taking somebody. In. And everybody in our church is involved in, you know, just Christian hospitality and together with the Great Commission. So... Residential discipleship, working with people with uh, life-controlling problems, has always been uh, an expression of our church family, for which I'm very grateful. Our church supports it. So right on the church property, we've got men's dorms and women's houses that God, we've... Uh, we're taking them in and we're collecting them. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: Can you... you know, one of the things that I've been trying to learn is that when I listen to your testimony, is basically... Your dad, that had some huge problems coming back and maybe planting a little bit of a seed. Then you had your yeah. science teacher come in. Yeah. And then you basically had the Bible speaking to you. Can you talk a little bit about to, to the people out there that always feel that they need to have the perfect words, the words of wisdom to bring somebody to, uh, to Christ? Yeah. And I'm a, the one thing that I remember is the Casting Crowns um, concert where. He's saying, I'm trying to say the right words, the right, the right uh, song, the right whatever. He says, sometimes I just need to get out of the way and allow God to do the speaking. Amen. And it sounds a little bit like your testimony. It's like you, God did the speaking more than yeah. these seeds that were along the way. And, and people get so intimidated off of trying to share their testimony. Yeah. And, and, and try to lead somebody to Christ, thinking they need to have the exact words or the exact verse. The, what, what What's your thoughts on, on, on leading somebody to Christ the, from your
1: experience? The Lord Jesus said, the sower soweth the word. The word is always the right thing to say. It's not like we have to have the right reference. It's just the word of God by itself is alive and powerful. If we just trust it and put our confidence in it, I, I I believe there's a lack of confidence in the sufficiency of God's word that plagues many of us. And if we just dare to let it go, just sow it in the hearts, It is alive and powerful. It'll make things happen. It all by itself will germinate, and, and it'll take root, and it'll grow. There, there are certainly seasons of life, you know, where people are receptive, and less receptive, it doesn't change. I used to think, I used to look at the parable of the sower and think, okay, when I was a younger preacher, (laughs) the parable of the sower in Mark chapter four, you know, okay, stony ground, that's a problem. Let's smash the stones. Uh, Birds, they're the problem. Let's blast them, let's shoot the birds. Thorns are the problem. Let's burn them all, set them on fire. I missed the point in my younger days as a preacher. The powerful thing in the parable of the sower is the word. And our business is not stones or thorns or, or birds. Our business is just sow the seed of the word, and it really is. It it proved to be, the very powerful thing that captured my heart, changed my life, and yeah. continues to. Yeah, boy, thank you so much for sharing tonight. For asking. Ken,
0: if you if you have a chance uh, and you want to get to know Ken even more, watch the sermon this morning. Watch that, uh, I think it's 167 and 59 that we brought up. It's just some amazing testimony. I, we appreciate it so much. It's just a, incredible. And so we're so looking forward to having you back again soon. Rob always loves having you here. So Next we day. appreciate it. Um, so tomorrow night we are going to have episode 200. I hope we have somebody exciting. I know that Kelly and Rob is working to have somebody uh, out there that's going to bless us all, just like all these episodes have blessed us. But uh, uh, can I say a prayer and then you can do the closing because we've got to say Let's the blessing it. in here. So let me pray. And Lord, thank you so much for people like Ken Graves to, to bless us with his words of wisdom and his depth and his ministry of what he's doing for the people of Maine. Thank you for him taking the stand in his battle with the, the government, uh, just like our church is doing that same thing. Please give our uh, our leaders wisdom as they go forward in challenging these and going up. And please be with these pastors that are taking that fight. Also be with our pastors that are challenged in their heart to figure out how can they open Give them the desire to want to open. Give them the desire to want to lead their people. Their people are crying out and saying, Pastor, please lead us. Please be there and and be the shining star that we need to point towards Christ, Lord. So help these pastors to be encouraged to take a stand and open up and lead their people, Lord. Uh, Please be with uh, uh, Rob and Charlie Kirk and all the people that are crisscrossing this country, making a difference as we go into the final call of this election, the last 16, 17 days. Please be with their health. Please be with their spirit. Please help to uplift them. Please protect them, Lord, as things will be shot at them to try to drag them down, Lord. So please be with them in all the things that they need. Uh, Be with uh, uh, the the showing of non-essential. It has some incredible words. Help that be spread out so that people can really see some... uh, thoughts and some opinions and see you through the words of these great leaders that spoke on the movie Non-Essential and for people to see you through that, Lord. Lord, once again, we thank for the great blessings that you've given us through Ken Graves and and thank you for our church and thank you for you and blessing us with this platform to be able to get your word and your message out, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And. If you can give us the blessing to the people,
1: that would be great. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
0: Thank you so much. Hope you guys have a great Sunday night and we look forward to seeing you soon.